dear friends, and waking up this morning, I smile. A brand new day lies before me. Today is uh, March 8, 2020. We're here at Flathead Lake, and it's a beautiful morning, uh, a little early, with a time change. A little clock here uh, still says uh, 7 o'clock. <laughs> Years ago, I had a, uh, during a retreat, I had an interview with Eileen Kira, a uh, Dharma teacher in our tradition, uh, who organizes and, and lives at the retreat center Mountain Lamp in uh, Northwest Washington. And uh, I sat down with her, and I was really uh, troubled because my mind was always going. I was always thinking. I was always uh, running. So I sat down with her and I uh, told her about that trouble. And she said something that really surprised me. Uh, I expected some meditation instruction about coming back to the breath, finding the body. Uh, letting my uh, attention move kind of outward instead of uh, inward. But what she said was, uh, that's your gift. Um, completely surprised me because it did not feel like a gift. Uh, felt like pulling me out of the present moment. Um, and um, those words uh, stayed with me uh, and have stayed with me through my practice, through this, through this time. Because what she did was she uh, helped me uh, see that uh, the things that we bring, the difficult uh, Things, the, thing, uh, the uh, ways that we perceive and begin to identify with parts of ourselves, uh, we start to perhaps pathologize them or want to push them away. And what uh, she did in that moment was uh, open the possibility of seeing those parts that we push away as also gifts. It is true that constant discursive thinking pulls me out of the present moment. And she knew I already knew that. What she offered in that moment was an opportunity to see that process from a different perspective, from a different understanding. In other words, uh, using our language from yesterday, uh, manas energy was grabbing on to thinking as an uh, identity, um, and in that case, a negative identity. And so her invitation was to loosen that grip a little bit and actually touch uh, very deeply thinking, not as an identity, not as a uh, something to push away, but just something that was there because that seed of thinking was coming from store consciousness too, was coming from our collective uh, experience. All of our thinking, our humanity, is a gift. 
So I want to, uh, I share that because I want us to be careful uh, that um, we don't villainize or uh, see uh, mamas, see those seeds, uh, see our experience as something to, to push away, as something to uh, create a new identity around, uh, to grab onto something else. One of the aspects of uh, manas that we didn't touch on yesterday, this consciousness that comes out of, um, out of the collective store and then turns back on itself, grabs onto identity, uh, grabs onto seeds, uh, is that it's also our uh, self-preservation uh, instinct. Uh, when something is uh, uh, coming towards our face, we move. Right? Our mind doesn't think like, oh, that's interesting, something's coming towards my face. Let me be curious about this, right? We don't do that. <laughs> we get out of the way. Um, that is also manas. So it helps us, it serves us. There's some really real evidence that when our views about the world are challenged, um, when we hold on to a belief about something very tightly, and then that is challenged. <coughs> Manas also kicks in as self-preservation, uh, and we fight um, for our view to be correct. Uh, so biologically, our whole um, system responds as though we are being personally attacked, uh, physically. And so you can see how uh, manas, um, which has this wonderful, wonderful gift of allowing our uh, bodies to continue, with allowing our uh, uh, harm uh, to be avoided, how that can, when it starts to apply into these realms of identity, uh, starts kicking it a little bit over, uh, over into uh, not so helpful not so helpful arenas. Another way of thinking about uh, manas to have a different relationship with it uh, is that the seeds that come into uh, this consciousness, this manas consciousness, uh, when they touch it, manas the response of this consciousness is to love really profoundly. But it's the kind of um, love that quickly becomes attachment, uh, quickly uh, becomes um, dependent. So uh, it's not motivated, that, that consciousness isn't motivated by, uh, by harm, but actually by love. So we'll be, uh, when we think about manas, we'll be gentle with it. Uh, gentle with this aspect of ourselves. Uh, because it is our gift to, to be able to reach and uh, to touch these uh, seeds from our store consciousness. Uh, and what happens uh, with this, um, with this consciousness is that it often becomes the uh, foundation of our mind consciousness, our thinking. Um, and so uh, our ideas uh, that are being held really tightly uh, become the foundation of our, of our mind. And we know this, I've shared before that uh, when when I moved to uh, Montana, and I would walk around and, and just see trees, 
green. And then you hear bird. <laughs> Just these, uh, these simple things. And then as you learn more, uh, as you learn to identify different organisms, different beings, we start to see them as differentiated. We start to see them, it's like, oh, that's not just a tree. It's a ponderosa pine. Uh, you know, that is Oregon grape. Uh, you hear a bird, that's a Swainson's thrush. You start to uh, discriminate. Um, and so what's happening is, is our mind is um, helping our eye, our ear consciousness and it's saying, okay, that image, that representation, that is this kind of thing. Uh, so we start to um, be able to carve up and be able to see, uh, see things uh, kind of individually. But what happens very quickly is um, we start to see the representation of those things. So we start to see ponderous pine. And we see ponderous pines, plural, right? It's just, it's just what we do. We start to group. And then what happens is we lose that direct experience of the individual, of the individual organism, the individual being. And so um, as we uh, as we develop uh, kind of this ability to discern, and we also are simultaneously developing this representation, this uh, ability to put things into categories and, and groups. And we start to do this uh, with ourselves too, with our identity. But one of the gifts of mind consciousness is mindfulness. The ability uh, to bring our full presence and awareness so that we are not uh, operating solely on kind of our representational world. It was a lovely Mary Oliver poem. I, I don't have it uh, on me now. It might even be in that book. We don't need to look. But when she's holding a grasshopper, um, and she's looking at it, and she says, you know, what makes a grasshopper? And then she says, this grasshopper. Um, because uh, she was moving her, her mind from the representation of grasshopper to that direct experience of this being that was in front of her, uh, eating sugar out of her hand. And she was just, you know. And so we have that ability to um, bring our mindfulness practice into, um, into our experience. So we can move from this world of um, this experience, this uh, um, way of perceiving uh, representation into the present. And we can bring our uh, whole being into contact with another being, with other beings. And as we do that, as we begin to touch, uh, as we begin to touch the being in front of us, not the representation of it, but the actual being in front of us, um, we move and we start to touch the roots of that ignorance and delusion of manas. We start to soften it a little bit. We start to, uh, to ease, to tell manas, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to hold on to this quite so tightly. Um, thank you for allowing me to touch this seed. 
the seed of this tree, of this person, of this moment. You don't have to hold it so tight. It's all right. And that's what our mindfulness can do in that moment to that manas. And then manas becomes, uh, starts becoming a gift uh, because it, allow, it, it provides uh, that direct contact with the store consciousness and it allows that, that contact to move through it, uh, to be soft, to be gentle into our mind, into our presence, into our being, into our whole uh, sense experience our whole lived experience, then we are fully alive. Yeah. And so our, uh, our thinking, our identities, our things that Manas clings to also become our gifts. And that's what Eileen was showing me. Fortunately, it, it took me about 15 years to figure out what the heck she was talking about. But, uh, but it stayed, uh, that, that um, inquiry. You know, those times when I, my brain was just running and running and it was trying to, so hard to fit things in categories and understand. And, you know, I would have those moments where, like, this is a gift, some gift, can I send it back? Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a point of inquiry. In, uh, In the discourse to be given to the sick, uh, the friend, lay friend of the Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha, Anatta Pindika, is very ill and is um, actually uh, uh, close to his death. And some of the senior uh, monastics at the time went to go visit uh, Anatta Pindika. Shariputra, uh, one, of, um, one of the pillars of the Sangha uh, at the Buddha's time, and Ananda, who is the Buddha's attendant, and also uh, we have him to thank for uh, memorizing all of the Buddha's talks and then passing those on to the next, and the next, and the next. It was Ananda's great gift. His mind was also, uh, his ability to recall and, and recollect was... Uh, a gift to all of us. And uh, they went to, to visit uh, Anatta Pindika, who was in a lot of pain um, as a result of his illness. So uh, Shariputra gave him a guided meditation. Um, and much of the, the meditation had the, the form of this body is not me. I am not caught by this body. These eyes are not me. I am not caught by these eyes. And they went through all of the senses, all of the uh, sense objects, that is the things that we see and hear, and think and touch, taste, and all of the consciousnesses. They went through uh, what are called the five skandhas, the form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, all of these things. As a way of uh, helping Anattapindaka loosen his grip on, uh, on identity, on self, go through a very, very deep and lovely guided meditation. And at the end, uh, Anantapindika begins to cry. 
Maybe we can sit with him for a minute. And um, Ananda, uh, who had the gift for uh, recollection, but uh, not necessarily uh, for being in the moment, says, what's wrong in Atapindika? Isn't the meditation working? <laughs> and he says, no, it's just so beautiful. And I haven't heard that before. And uh, they say, the monks, I can't remember which one, says, oh, we monastics hear this all the time. <laughs> Thankfully, Anattapindika said, uh, please don't just save this for the monastics. There are plenty of lay people who can also touch this practice. So we have him to thank uh, for, uh, for us today, uh, for being able to touch that. Um, it's a very powerful practice uh, to release that grip on our on ourself, on our body, on our eyes, on our thinking. And as we started to look at yesterday. These identities uh, that we are a part of, uh, yesterday I used the language of systems, these systems that we are a part of. Some of my systems are white, man, cisgender, middle class. Can go further, younger brother, father, son, Buddhist, chaplain, can keep putting, these are all systems you know, that we're a part of. And manas um, grab so tightly um, to those systems that we start to not even see them anymore. Just like, uh, just like we don't necessarily see our body. Right? It's just there. It's always there. Until um, we start to look at it. Really deeply look at our body, our seeing, our eyes. All of these things. And it can become a challenge to see those systems that, uh, that we are a part of. And so, although our body is not me, and I am not caught by this body, on the other hand, without a body, I can't wake up. I am dependent on this body for waking up. You take away the body, you take away the ability to wake up in this world. So we're not separate from our experience, our bodies, our uh, systems that we're a part of, but neither are we attached to them. Um, this is uh, the teaching of non-attachment. It's not a uh, getting away from. That's why uh, in the in the sutras they talk about the body in the body, right? So we're not attached to the body, yet we're still 100% fully present in the body. Um, 
And so our We can't step outside of our body to practice, nor can we step outside of these systems uh, to practice. But as we started to explore yesterday, uh, we do need to take care of our systems, uh, our body. And when there's harm uh, happening, uh, we work to stop it. Uh, we work to transform it. The Buddha discovered that denying the body was not helpful. Uh, and you can see how uh, denying that we're a part of the system uh, is not helpful. There was a teacher in Oklahoma, a high school teacher, who said to his students, uh, all white people are racist. Now, he was a white person. He was fired. Uh, because he angered a lot of people. But he was touching something very deeply there. And he was touching this idea, uh, this, this lived experience, that by being located as a white person in the United States, um, whether we are overtly or not, we are participating in a system of racism. cannot escape it. And that's, uh, that's the point where we wake up to that. Because once you see that, once you touch that, um, you can't ignore it anymore. Uh, you can't not know that it's there anymore. We can't step outside of it any more than we can step outside of our own body. And so that's, uh, that's the point where we begin to say, oh, okay. That's not all right. <laughs> I want to transform the system. I want to, um, I want to, uh, touch it inside myself, not to blame myself, not to put uh, guilt, uh, shame on myself, but because now I know where I am located. Now I know where I can step forward. That list of, of um, identities I gave before, each one of those is a system whiteness for me, uh, male, uh, cisgendered for me. All these things are places where I'm located. And I can uh, delude myself and say, well, you know, I'm a man, but, you know, I pretty, you know, I understand this stuff, so I'm okay, right? That's <laughs> uh, uh, it's part of our, our practice of awareness of expansion. And so once we touch into that place, uh, the, the point of our practice, uh, and not the, not the purpose, but the uh, place where we put our attention, that point of practice, for me, is a question of, um, we ask, what is possible, right? Because um, there's three, uh, I heard this lovely um, expression of grief. And when we touch into these places where we are participating in systems of harm, there is a, a grief there. Grief because uh, we realize that, uh, that we're a participant here. And the, the question, uh, these three questions for grief, uh, is what is lost? Yeah. Something is lost. 
when, it, when I touch into that, um, for me, what is lost is uh, a good thing, actually. It's uh, ignorance, uh, unconscious, uh, bias, uh, implicit bias. And what remains? And then what is possible? Those are very helpful uh, questions for, for beginning to do this work. Because it doesn't leave us with just that pit of like, well, shoot, <laughs> this is too much. Uh, but rather, it's what is possible. Um, one thing that is possible uh, and that we are lucky uh, to have is that we have uh, the access to Sangha members, to Sangha, uh, to our community. And many of these systems of harm that I participate in uh, would not have been known to me without Sangha, without um, people speaking to them um, without deep listening, without deep looking, uh, without uh, being willing to uh, hear these things and let them come in. Uh, because manas uh, will work to preserve the self. And so you hear a sentence like uh, that, Oklahoma uh, teacher spoke. <coughs> All white people are racist. I don't know about you, but the first time I read it, I immediately said, that's not true. Mm -hmm. Right? Got defensive. That was Manas at work there saying, uh, uh, oh, hey, no, this is, this is painful. You're going to get hurt here. Get out of the way. Move. There's something coming towards you. Self-preservation. self preservation. And, but this community has the capacity to allow us to hear these things and to um, let them bypass that uh, protective self. But we can't do it if we don't speak to it, uh, if we don't share our experience uh, in Sangha, in community. If, if we're not willing to um, risk a little bit, uh, there will be people who hear it defensively. Um, share an example from a little bit outside of Sangha. Um, I uh, had the privilege of doing a spiritual care support group at the Neurobehavioral Inpatient Unit in Missoula. And uh, uh, part of that is we went around the circle and shared what was weighing on our hearts, uh, what was lifting us up. Um, and uh, then I offered uh, kind of a, a loving kindness meditation that's specific. Some might call it a prayer, uh, but specific to each individual's uh, suffering and uh, joy. And uh, there were two people in the, in the group that, uh, after I was done sharing, said, excuse me, you used the wrong pronouns for me and for my friend. And then they checked, you know, checked, is it okay if I speak for you? Yes. Uh, and I did. I made uh, assumptions about uh, what I saw. Uh, and it, uh, when I first heard about introducing you know, yourself with the pronouns, uh, I thought, like, I can't do that. It's, it doesn't feel natural to me. It's like, it's just too much. I can't be everything to everyone. Like, you know, just all these things. Well, you know, you know what part of me that was. 
out of manas, uh, saying, uh, uh, throwing up that, um, that protection. Protection from what? That's what I always wonder. <laughs> but, um, but my response uh, to those people was, um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I've known that it's important to do that, and I'm failing to do it. So thank you for reminding me. This is another wonderful reminder of how important it is to do that. When we were going around the circle yesterday and it came to me, I actually didn't do it. I didn't use, I didn't say, my name is Greg, uh, he, him. I got scared. Manas was like, no, no, other people didn't do it. So you don't do it either, right? It's, uh, um, <laughs> so that's a, a place to, um, that's an example of both uh, uh, the process. And I, I share both of those with you because in that group I was happy to be corrected. Um, yet, when I was in this group, I still didn't correct myself. Uh, so that's because, uh, uh, you know, it's not, um, it's still a, a process, a learning process. And so our sangha, uh, our dharma sharing, is, is such a wonderful time to begin to practice these things. To begin to practice, um, hey, here is my experience of um, identity uh, being, um, getting in the way of connection. Here is my experience of being a man in this world and how I am causing harm. Here is my experience of how I am harmed. Um, and sharing this with one another uh, and trusting that the Sangha uh, has the capacity. Maybe not each individual in the Sangha at each moment, but the Sangha itself has the capacity to receive that and to begin to transform uh, and begin to uh, open that uh, grip on identity, that grip on, um, on suffering. Because if we, um, if we are not able to touch those places in ourselves where we are participants in these systems, we cannot transform them. Uh, because uh, manas will try to Protect, protect us, uh, try and defend us. And with that, uh, please be gentle with yourself and with one another because uh, all we're asking is that you completely dismantle your identity. <laughs> That's it. gentle with our sangha and with one another as we kind of go through this process and, and with ourselves. Uh, one of the uh, gifts of uh, youth right now is this call-out culture, uh, but it's also one of the uh, difficulties uh, because it's, there's an expectation that people transform today. As soon as I say it, we're expected to transform. Um, I appreciate deeply the call-out culture. Um, and uh, and when we see uh, someone being the target of that, let's put that inside, too. Like, how would I respond in this uh, situation of being called out? And um, maybe in our sanghas we can be a little more gentle as we call it out. Yeah. 
because it's not, uh, our intention is not to blame, uh, not to shame, not to judge, uh, but to shine light, uh, but to, uh, but to offer uh, what is hidden uh, to be visible. And so uh, we can both practice uh, sharing that and practice receiving it. It's a, a two-way uh, street. And, and what, it, what it does is it, it allows uh, transformation to happen. I heard a wonderful quote by uh, Stephen Jenkinson, who does a lot of uh, grief work. And he said, uh, the price of learning, or the cost of learning, is what you know. So as you learn, you have to let go of what you know. Because what we know is no longer uh, applicable anymore. So that is the cost of learning. And and so the, the cost of uh, touching into these places where, uh, where these systems are, are operating um, is that we don't get to um, not know that they're there anymore. Yeah. Now we know. So now we ask what is possible. And that's what our Sangha uh, is for. Is, we bring these things, and then we, we ask, what is possible? Um, it was recently pointed out to me in our Sangha in Missoula that uh, uh, there may be an implicit um, class bias. Um, and that uh, a Sangha member was feeling uh, that uh, this person's experience um, may not be understood by the Sangha. Uh, it was just such a lovely reminder that we can't assume anything. Uh, we always have to ask. Am I sure? What is your experience? Uh, we have to be curious. Uh, we have to help each other learn uh, and share. Um, you know, a funny example from our home uh, is, I shared this at dinner the other night, uh, Friday night, which feels like it was about a week ago now. But um, I uh, sat down at the uh, dinner table, or, uh, we were having lunch, and uh, we had had asparagus the night before, and uh, we were going to have it again, because um, we usually eat our leftovers from dinner for lunch. It just saves on, on time. And so I, I said to the children, uh, I'm going to say a sentence now, and you will both have very wildly different experiences of this sentence. I said, we are out of asparagus. And uh, my youngest son said, yes! <laughs> and my oldest son said, ah! Um, isn't that funny? Um, just a simple sentence like that can evoke wildly different responses in, um, in different beings. Makes you wonder, um, you know, how other, how are um, other people experiencing the exact same thing that we are. Why it could be wildly different. Uh, which is why it's so important for us to share uh, from our experience and from our heart. Uh, and why it's also so important for us to receive with our hearts. Uh, with that deep, deep desire to wake up 
with that deep desire to be free of suffering. Because when I hear your suffering, when I hear your experience, it helps me to wake up. When I hear your joy, when I hear your gratitude, it helps me to wake up. When I hear uh, experience, uh, and I saw the, the nodding of uh, the trumpeter swans, it helps me to wake up. Um, because I can touch that experience with you. When I hear your suffering, uh, when I hear your experience of being human in this, uh, in this culture, in this social system, in this family system, in this sangha. It helps so that we can wake up uh, together. We cannot do it alone. If you want, uh, if you want, uh, I guess a great practice is go sit by yourself in meditation and then go get in an argument with someone you disagree with. And you'll see that um, that meditation practice uh, maybe supports us for a little bit, but then we start getting caught up in the argument, right? And we start getting uh, engaged in that. Um, we cannot wake up by just being alone. Uh, we cannot wake up by um, having these insights on our own, individually. Um, because there are things that we will not be aware of until we are aware of them from the sharing of other people. Um, sangha is a uh, collective, uh, collective waking up. The Buddha knew this uh, when he had his awakening. He touched the nature of reality. Uh, and then he uh, taught, and then he shared, and then he built community with all of its flaws and all of its difficulties. And I was talking last night that the, originally to join the Buddha Sangha, uh, you shaved your head and you said, um, I take refuge. You really, you didn't say you actually took refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You took refuge in the capacity to awaken, the way, the teachings of awakening, and the community. And then the Sangha started getting bigger, and there were more people involved, and um, there were some maybe some rules that were starting to get into place, like the, um, one of the practices of the Sangha was that you didn't eat after noon. Um, they were the original, I guess, intermittent fasters. Uh, so, so they would go out and, and with the begging bowls and they would come back and they would uh, share their, their food and they would eat. And, uh, there was a, a monk who was very sick and wasn't able to eat at that time, but maybe later in the afternoon uh, was able to take some food, but the uh, monks didn't feed him because there was a rule that he didn't eat afternoon. Uh, and so the Buddha said, no, 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 no. Let's make a new rule. No eating afternoon unless you're sick. Then you can eat afternoon so that your body can stay healthy. Uh, oh, okay, thanks, Buddha. You know that, uh, uh, and then pretty soon you had 240 monastic rules, um, precepts, all of which were to support the practice, all of which came about uh, kind of organically as the Sangha uh, evolved. Um, and then uh, as, the, as the Buddha was dying, um, they, he said, uh, they asked him which rules to keep. And he said, just the important ones. 
They, unfortunately, he didn't uh, tell the monks and nuns which the important rules were. So um, we still have them, uh, the 240. They couldn't decide uh, which the Buddha considered the important ones, so they're all important. Um, but um, you know, this is this is part of our our collective too. It's just these are just the way things happen. Uh, systems come into place uh, to help, and it's always a good idea um, in our sangha communities to ask ourselves. Is this uh, kind of rule, right? Is this thing that we're putting into place supporting the Sangha or supporting the system that we put into place? Um, it's a helpful way of kind of piercing through uh, so that we don't get stuck in, in, in the, uh, I was going to say bureaucracy, but it feels like a, Yucky word, but um, but it is right. It's uh, so we don't get stuck in the in the, that um, system. And and you know many times the answer will be, um, you know, in the the case of the those two rules about not eating afternoon and then feeding uh, if you're sick that it's okay. Those actually do support the practice. Uh, there was a, a practice in the sangha of. Um, you know, uh, the way that the Buddha Sangha related to food and related to uh, uh, control over the body and, and, and not overeating and, and not uh, giving in to that desire to eat, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, that supported the practice, as did this other piece of information. Those supported the practice. Um, but what happened was that rule became dogma, and that poor sick monk uh, wasn't able to uh, have his body nourished in that moment. So uh, we'll just, as we go to our communities, as we uh, engage in our practice, um, we'll, let's really uh, work together to wake up together, uh, to look at, uh, um, you know, as we're creating new systems, what are these supporting? Are these supporting the people, or are they supporting just another system? Because we want to uh, always um, be careful. Um, and the good news is, is you don't have to figure it out by yourself. And I don't have to figure it out by myself. That we uh, we talk to each other. Um, uh, one of the things I was going to share today is uh, uh, it's called uh, the empowerment dynamic or uh, the empowerment triangle. Um, and uh, I'll back up because there's a common system that we're all a part of called, uh, uh, sometimes it's called the drama triangle or the victim triangle. Uh, and this is a relationship. Uh, it's, uh, and that word victim, I am cautious to use. It's not, um, sometimes we truly are victims. But this is more of a relational dynamic, not a um, situational experience. Uh, so I just want to make that clear. But um, the drama triangle, uh, there's, there's a triangle, and at one vertex, uh, there is um, the role of the victim. Uh, at another vertex of the triangle is the uh, persecutor. So, great example would be, uh, you never do the laundry. <laughs> so now there's a, a persecutor, right? You never do the laundry. And then there's the victim. Well, I don't have time to do the laundry. 
I am busy with all these things. Um, just as an aside, my wife does do the lion's share of the laundry, but I do help. <laughs> this is not a dynamic in my house. Um, although it could be. Uh, and then you have um, uh, the rescuer is the third vertex. The rescuer comes in and uh, tries to fix the situation uh, and save the victim from the persecutor. You know, maybe in this example, my, one of my kids would come up and say, I saw Daddy doing laundry just yesterday. It's not fair to say that to him, right? <laughs> uh, and then very quickly, that dynamic can shift. And now, uh, the persecutor is the victim. And the victim becomes the persecutor and says, yeah, I did laundry the other day. I didn't see you doing it, right? And then maybe the, the rescuer can come in and say, well, they did laundry two days ago. Right, or whatever it is. Um, this is a very common dynamic that we have in our lives. And we shift through these roles uh, very rapidly. And, uh, Sometimes we have a starting place where we are a, a victim or a persecutor or a rescuer. Uh, people in the helping professions tend to be rescuers uh, with the desire to fix. Um, but you can see what happens is when you, when you adopt these roles, when you um, inadvertently identify with these roles, uh, um, the victim creates the persecutor the persecutor creates the rescuer. Um, these roles are co-created. Um, and then, of course, we can cycle through them. Uh, a wonderful exercise to do uh, is tell somebody a story where you are um, the victim in a relational situation. Um, where, you know, the other day at work, the other day at home, this happened. This person did this to me, and this happened. Tell someone that story. Um, and, then, uh, and then shift it, and try to tell that same story, um, but take 100% responsibility. Um, so uh, in this laundry example, uh, I would tell the story, yeah, um, the other day, my wife was very tired, and uh, there was a huge pile of laundry, and I saw it, and I didn't do it. Now I've taken responsibility. I no longer am the victim. And the funny thing about this experience is uh, uh, nine times out of 10, the victim story is way more compelling and believable, and the person you tell it to will have a hard time identifying with your uh, responsibility story. They will identify with your victim story. Like, yeah, and that's really unfair that they did this to you. Um, so uh, the empowerment triangle inverts that system, and it changes the, the, the roles. And one way you can see is that, that uh, victim story becomes a creator becomes a, um, a, yeah, I saw that huge pile of laundry and I didn't do anything about it. So now I'm, a, uh, I'm not kind of at the mercy of somebody else's um, uh, um, story. It's, it's like now I can take responsibility. I can create. I can make a new situation. I can change this. Uh, the persecutor becomes a challenger uh, to, um, to the system, to the status quo. Uh, instead of saying, like, you never do this, you know, it's, it's like, hey, you know, I, I'm really tired today. I noticed that there's this huge pile of laundry, uh, and um, I really need your help. Let's uh, work on this together. Let's you know, challenge this system. And the rescuer becomes a coach uh, in this system. So the rescuer becomes, instead of going in and fixing it, 
and uh, uh, healing, it becomes like, yeah, all right, let's support this, this new system. Let's, uh, you've challenged it. You've challenged this uh, status quo. Now we're creating something new, and now uh, this role becomes a support to this new system. And that's what our sanghas can do. You know, when you hear uh, all white people are racist, that is a challenge, uh, not a persecution. That is a challenge. Um, and so then we have this opportunity to create uh, a new system, to break down and create something. Uh, sometimes it will be a creation of awareness. Sometimes it will be a creation of change, and the coach uh, is there to, to support our process, not to do it for us, not to reach in and fix it, but to support that change. So this em empowerment triangle is, uh, uh, it's helpful to notice when we're on that victim triangle, uh, and it's also helpful to transform it. Um, so I share that as a practical uh, Kind of, I, I apologize for the kind of brevity of that because it would be um, it's something that we could spend a lot more time uh, looking at. But I just want to introduce that idea to you uh, as a way of um, these kind of common uh, systems of um, uh, the way that we operate. That's one um, kind of small system that we can see and change and work with in real time. Uh, and uh, if somebody points a finger at you and says, you never do the laundry, um, they may be trying to push us into that victim role. Uh, not on purpose, right? But, um, but our response can change that dynamic. Our response, instead of being like, yes, I do, you know, uh, instead of being the victim, can be that creative thing. You're right. I don't do it enough. Thank you. Now what? What a different dynamic. That changes that whole uh, triangle, transforms it into this empowerment one, where now we're working together. We're working as a system. And we're working as a sangha. So just try to uh, notice these uh, roles in yourself, in the sangha, um, and also notice uh, if somebody is adopting one of these roles, um, one, you know, the, the curiosity is like, how can we change this? How can we change this system? Uh, so that uh, we don't have to put people in these roles anymore. Uh, we co-create them. And we can also uh, co-transform them by the way that we feels like enough for uh, what yesterday would have been 8.30 in the morning, <laughs> but today is 9.30. <laughs> um, uh, this practice um, is very, very beautiful, very subtle. And at the foundation, uh, let's uh, remember, uh, let's remember those uh, Brahma Vihara, the four immeasurable minds of love. Let's remember our loving kindness as we engage this practice, our compassion, our celebration with other people, our joy that we receive from seeing others joyful, from seeing others uh, succeed and transform and love and celebrate and be joyful. Let's celebrate that with them. And let's um, work towards this equanimity, not, um, not an equanimity that is uh, uh, kind of a stiff, rigid, um, even keel, but an equanimity that comes from uh, 
For me, it translates often as gratitude. When somebody shares something that I'm doing that is causing harm, my response is, um, I sometimes, thank you. Uh, Because without you, I wouldn't have known that. And I wouldn't have had the opportunity to transform that in myself. Thank you. So love, thanks. That's enough. That's enough.